0: We're so caught up in how people express their art or how they choose to live their lives that we don't even see how our, how our opposition, how those who don't mean us well, are pitting us against one another.
1: Welcome to a movement of kindness and empathy. You're listening to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. Embarking on a mission to unite our city under the banner of compassion, we're one among 440 cities around the globe standing together to build a more compassionate world. Now introducing the man leading the charge, your host, Will Rucker. Welcome to Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm your host, Will Rucker, and we've got a very amazing guest joining us for this episode. We're going to talk about democracy. We're going to talk about change. We're going to talk about what comes next and so much more. So with that, I'd like to welcome Quentin Savoie to the podcast. Hello. What's going on, Will Rucker? How are you, my friend? You know, I am doing just fine. How about yourself?
0: I'm doing good. I really can't complain. It's hot and there's a lot of crazy in the world, but I've been on my meditation and journal writing, so I'm trying to keep it all together.
1: <laughs> I love it. Starting us off with two self-care practices. That is fantastic. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so glad we were able to get together for this episode. It's been such a privilege getting to know you over the past few years and to work with you in various capacities. And so I just want to dive into really what it's like being you. And I want our audience to get to know you a little bit better, but to set the bar, to level set, to get our foundation going, I want to hear from you how you define compassion.
0: Mm, that's a great question. What a great way to start. I think, I think compassion starts with care I, I scream from this Bailey Wick a lot about how there's a real void of care in our community, uh, void of care in health care. Quite literally, you see Black women dying at disproportionate rates. There's a devastating story out of Georgia recently where a doctor uh, did something extremely vile to a child that was being born, and that child was not born alive. And I don't even want to repeat it because it's so heinous. Uh, but I think that there's a void in care. Even in just speaking to one another, I am amazed that when I'm out and about, the teeth I have to pull just to get a random stranger to smile and wave back at me when I say, hi, good afternoon, I think that the world we've created, driven by technology, has driven us into our partisan corners or our niche corners where we only talk to those that agree with us and are not interested in challenging the ideas that we have about things that are happening outside of the things we're comfortable with. So when I think about compassion, I think about care, and I think we could do a much better job at caring for one another. Hmm.
1: There's so much in that because, yeah, it really does come down to care. And I wonder if people have kind of exhausted their care. I mean, I won't pretend like we didn't just come through an entire pandemic that shut the world down, something that really no one on the planet had experienced before and so I just wonder if maybe it's our care that has created some of those barriers, perhaps. Hey, that is a good way to put it. I hadn't thought about it that way.
0: I think about the void of care being tied to this like American ideology that, you know, we can just pick ourselves up by our bootstraps and like we are all independently made. That is a trope and that's a, I call it American propaganda quite honestly because no one does anything alone even the business has created uh, for a singular individual is made possible by the amenities that they've enjoyed to get that far right so it is these collective things that we've done as human society in this country that have created opportunities for businesses to be uh, to start and and thrive so I wonder how much of the care piece we just taking it on to be, well, I don't need anyone to care about me. I can do it. But that's really not true. This grand experiment that we have in this country is only made possible through caring for one another and being compassionate for one another
1: and available for one another. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I think it's a bit delusional to think Mm -hmm. that anyone could really survive on their own. I do an exercise in in some coaching masterminds where I say, okay, imagine you're the only person on the planet now what? And it's just really a right. thought experiment because when people really stop to think about it, it's like, oh my gosh, no. <laughs> we, we meet each other, and I want to be with other people. Like I'm an introvert by nature, and even I am like, oh, it's time to get around some people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, you got to be careful. Delusion's running high, so be,
0: between that delusion and the audacity, it is pretty wild. I think that Social media have played a big factor in this idea of, well, I can just do it myself because you have this world online where you interact with people, but you don't really interact with people. And I think about when I was a child and my dad being a labor reader, my dad organized people through having conversations with them. And sometimes they were hard conversations. Sometimes they were arguments. Sometimes they cussed each other out, but (laughs) they came back to it, right? They didn't walk away from the idea or, or the challenging conversation at hand. They just agreed to disagree and would move forward the day you have a disagreement with somebody and they're ready to pull up on you with a gun. And it's just like, that's not the way civilized people, that's not the way civilized people live. So how do we overcome this idea that it's just us and we only need us? We, we need each other. It, it takes a village. That's an African proverb, but it actually is quite applicable to the,
1: the dire straits that, are, that we find our country in today. Yeah. And you remind me even with social media, when we get into an argument or a disagreement or we see something we don't like the first answer is, well, then block me. If you don't like what I'm posting, block me.
0: And (laughs)
1: these these barriers to to authentic dialogue, I grow in conversation with folks I disagree with. And that's what really strengthens my core beliefs and my values is by examining those that I don't hold. So uh, with that, you hold a number of roles and you are such a uh, instrumental piece of the next generation of our communities, so just you know, high level. What are the the fifteen, eleven jobs you got? <laughs> oh goodness, but my my four
0: jobs that are all free. How did I end up with four free job? I I, I messed that up. Bad, bad um, i it's a privilege to be the president of the Las Vegas NAACP. My I made a Facebook post. I remember being introduced to the NAACP uh from my grandmother. She took me to a national conference as a kid, and she still speaks very highly of the association and beings with pride in the legacy of the progress that the organization, the association is how it's referred, uh, have protected and preserved for 114 years. And I remember being so bored out of my mind in those breakout sessions all those years ago to now be the leader of a branch in charge of some things at a very pivotal time in our country's history. It is very much full circle moment. I never thought that that would be the way but here we are, and, it, and it's very exciting. The NAACP is, is thriving, and it is alive and well. The worries I have about the association are worries that we see in our ecosystem, largely with the passing of the torch to a new generation of leaders. And we have a lot of leaders that are still putting in a lot of incredible work. I think about Dr. Hazel Dukes, who's the state conference president in New York. But Ms. Hazel's also 91 years old. You know, so I, I start to think about Well, where is the mentorship? Where is the teaching of? And I'm not saying that this doesn't exist, right? I'm sure that she has mentored countless people in her years of advocacy and service to the world. But I just wonder what the holdup is in making sure that the next generation of readers has what it takes to assume the leadership roles. Because the things that we've been doing haven't changed the issues that we're having. We're very much still living in a world that our forebathers don't forefathers fought back against in the 50s and 60s and 70s. I was talking to my dad and I wasn't around at this time, but my dad speaks about how during the 60s, all the advances we made in civil rights, we found that in the 70s, there was a backlash to that. And he he refers to this moment in time to that moment in time where we see the rollback of some of our civil rights and civil liberties. So for me, it's really an honor to be president at this time because it feels like a, a Janet Jackson song made for now, right? Like Janet's my girl. So I listen to made for now. It keeps me fueled up. Uh, so that's my that's my big community job. I'm also vice president of my fraternity chapter, Theta Pi Lambda of Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated. Uh, Alpha has changed my life. I'm actually new in the fraternity. I'm about I'm less than two years in uh, and Alpha has opened my brain up and lifted my confidence to understand that I'm limitless in this world. And you need that type of understanding of confidence in yourself if you're going to read a civil rights organization like the NAACP. Uh, I also work at Run for Something. That's my day job. That's what pays the bills. I help recruit young people to run for office across all 50 states. My project specifically is about finding pro-democracy election administrators. Those are the folks that are in charge of running elections and making sure that our systems maintain and are integral as we select those those that should lead our communities. So those are like my three big jobs. What else do I also do? I'm also involved with CEIC. I'm the vice president of CEIC. That's Cannabis Equity Inclusion Community. It's a grassroots policy group that's working to change the political and policy landscape of cannabis laws in the state of Nevada. 20 years ago, you had a little bit of weed on you. They gonna kick in your door and take you down to your jail for 30 years. But now we have figured out how to make it a multi-billion dollar industry and it's okay. <laughs> so our, our organization's position is that we want the business opportunities to be just as equitable and available to the, to the people in the communities that were destroyed because of this plant 20 years ago today. What else do I do? Those are the biggest things I think, Will, if, you know, Well, it's all around community servant. I like getting <laughs> my hand's dirty, you know?
1: <laughs> that That is enough, my friend. That is more than. No, enough. for real. <laughs> and, and I'm going to circle all the way back to that first role you mentioned and. Just share why you say NAACP instead of NAACP. Mm-hmm.
0: I say NAACP because when I say NAACP or when I've heard other people say NAACP, our younger people don't hear the double A; They hear W. Or there have been some adult men, some of my peers that hear NCAA. And I'm like, if "This if no, we got it wrong. Ida B. Wells is not pleased. Ida B. Wells is to be one of the founders. Of the NAACP, so I say NAACP so that people understand exactly what the let uh, monoc- what the not, what the acronym, excuse me, what the acronym is. But also, fun fact, and this is kind of new, the association is actually rebranding itself and getting away from the full use of National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and just going by the letters NAACP, and apparently. This is a vestige, and this has been the thing for a couple of years now, but the straw that broke the camel's back was a couple of weeks ago on the on the floor of the uh, House of Representatives, uh, one of the Republican congressmen from like Georgia, in his remarks, referred to colored people. And the whole Democratic side was like in an uproar, and they wanted it struck, struck from the record and so on and so on. But then his retort was, well, you have a whole organization that refers to colored people. Of course, we know that we can say it. You can't say it, but that and that that wasn't a suitable answer. So the National Association, which this was already underway before this happened, the National Association is rebranding to just be NAACP.
1: So I, I did not know that latter piece, but yeah, I think yeah. that people understand what it means, where it stems from, and and of course where well, I really want to get to where it's going. So with the multitude um of endeavors the the consistent thing that i do here really is community and so equity is, seems to be a a cornerstone perhaps of everything that you do uh whether it's cannabis or uh i'm going to say it colored people right what, what <laughs> out of where we're going with it. that that equity piece seems to be clear for you As an individual that is what I call a multi-minority, I'm sure you've experienced drama from every side, whether it's in your leadership or just in in being a part of a community. Tell me a little bit about how you deal with maintaining uh, your ardent commitment to change and drama. That's a great question, Will.
0: I think my, now I think what I, so I'm being like real vulnerable here. What I've realized in like these last couple of weeks is like my, my steadfastness to community is really entered in like selfishness. It's like an addiction for me. I grew up my, like my mom and my dad was married. So my dad wasn't in the house. So I was the man of the house with my mom and my sisters. So I was always picking up the slack. I was always tying down the loose ends. It's ingrained in me to need to always be doing something. Mm. So as an adult with no kids and a real heart for community and making sure that the experiences that I had as a young person are not matriculated down to new generations, I just show up. I stay out of the drama because I know that the drama is just there to distract me. It's it's intended to get me to be frustrated with being of service to my people because this is a free job. This job pays in gray hair, which if I get close enough, it will probably <laughs> see it. It pays in sleepless nights and weight gain. It does not pay. It occasionally pays in, you know, I, I, my treasurer said a couple of weeks ago, she said, I'm just so proud to be a part of this with y'all. Sometimes I get those kind of checks and those checks matter. Like that really feels good. I had another branch member tell me recently, I'm really glad to be on y'all's team. Like that's a real doubt, like someone vouching for you in that way and believing in your vision, the things you're trying to do, that goes a real long way. But the haters, they're going to be there. And I just, I just, I know that and I, I make sure not to give it too much energy because when you're doing work out of the goodness of your heart, it's easy to pack up and walk away. So I don't get caught up in the distractions because the distractions are intended to make me feel hopeless in my people and what's possible. And I'm not going to buy that. I'm not going to believe that. I know from which I come. I know that the challenges that we've come before, that have come before, are the same challenges today, but we have a blueprint for how to get over them. Further, I have way more resources than our foremothers and forefathers had. So there's no reason that I'm not steadfast and successful. And the only way that I'm not successful is if I choose not to be. Choosing not to be means I'm engaged in the foolery or I'm engaged with you feeling some type of way about me having a husband, right? Or I'm, I'm engaged in you feeling some type of way about me wanting to showcase and, and, and bring to the forefront uh, other types of Black folks that exist in our community. I'll tell you a funny story. I was planning our Juneteenth, uh, our Juneteenth Jubilee block party. And I said, you know what? I would like to see uh, some female impersonators, drag queen. I would like to see a drag queen perform at the Jubilee block party. There is nothing more freeing than a drag queen performing some freedom song right well you would have thought i said i was gonna have i don't know the kkk there well what is your agenda what i'm trying to get my community to understand is that no one is coming to save us and the longer we bicker and fight amongst one another the longer it's going to take for us to really rally up and fight back against the extremism that's trying to carry us back to free jim crow days we're so caught up in how people express their art or how they choose to live their lives that we don't even see how our, how our opposition, how those who don't mean us well, are pitting us against one another. So as a proudly black gay man, I'm, I'm going to be unapologetic in making the, the audience that this NAACP serves wider because I know it's going to take an army. My campaign slogan was, it's going to take all of us. And I meant that quite literally. It's going to take all of us to save democracy, to get rent that's affordable, to make sure childcare is within reach and quality, to make sure that Black women aren't dying in childbirth. That's not one person's job. That's all of our jobs. But we are more preoccupied with being upset that baby girl dresses as a drag queen, as an artistic expression, and makes a little coin on the weekend. Like, that's just crazy. You're more concerned about that than someone trying to take
1: your voting rights where that makes sense at. When we come back, I want to dive into that a bit more deeply and talk about the subject of democracy, because there is an idea that there's a radical left and a radical right, and they're somehow equivalent. And so I want to get your perspective <laughs> after, after this. There is How you'd like, you'd like to be treated. be treated, and that's the golden rule.
0: Camp Anytown has taught me that knowledge is power and if I utilize my voice I can make a difference in the world no matter how big or small.
1: I learned that as long as we stand together we can accomplish so much more. What Camp Anytown has taught me is that I am not crazy to think I can change the world. I'm crazy if I think I can do it alone.
0: Camp Anytown has taught me that just because I'm different does not mean I don't belong.
1: I learned at Camp
0: Anytown to be more compassionate because you never know what somebody else is going through.
1: Camp Anytown is a no-cost youth leadership camp that trains high school students in diversity, community, and inclusivity. When you choose the
0: Golden Rule license plate, you play a part in a local camp that helps shape a better tomorrow. Learn more at dmvnv.com.
1: This is Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker, and here today is president of the Las Vegas branch of the NAACP, and, 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 Quentin <laughs> Thank you, Will. That was funny. Yes. And, and, and. I'm going to get that t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So before the break, we were talking about democracy. And I love that you had the, the expression of drag art in your Juneteenth Jubilee celebration. Like, that is fantastic. I'm a ball kid. So drag has been a part of my life since... You know, I, I had my adult life, and I do miss it. I, I never have been a drag performer, but I was a face kid. I walked across the, ca- the, the nation.
0: Hey, look at
1: her uh, Yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was what you call, oh gosh, a, a star. That, that was the, the title. I was trying to become an icon. I never stayed in it long enough to do that. But what I have found, because I'm also a pastor, I've been a pastor for over 20 years and traveled the globe preaching Christianity. And sometimes that's not always congruent with how people view my orientation. So I just find it really, really fascinating that you brought that element into the NAACP. And how I want to tie this to democracy is I had a conversation with someone who is a nonpartisan. And they were saying, Well, you know what? I'm not, I'm not a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, I'm against the far left and the far right. And I asked them, like, well, how do you define the far left? Because I, I don't really see them as equivalent entities. And unfortunately, the the explanation he gave me was basically pronouns and sexuality. Well, the far left wants <laughs> to be able to, to, to have fluid gender identities. And I'm like, okay, even if that's the case, like, is that really the same as the far right teaching that slavery was beneficial for the enslaved? Like, these were different battles to me. So I want to hear your perspective on all of that. Listen, Slater was not a workforce development program. I just really,
0: when I heard that, I was like, man, we really are living in, in the last days. You know, your grandparents say, no, we in our last days. i was like, yep, this is it. Um, That is, that is I, I wrestle with that myself, um, honestly. I don't see the things that I talk about as being radical left. When I talk about the importance of There being pro-worker policies that center families that make sure that moms don't have to work three jobs to pay rent. When I talk about that being in on in par with us having an economically friendly landscape for businesses to come to Nevada and build, those things go hand in hand to me. Those things should not be competing interests, right? The idea that rent should be affordable. Everyone needs housing. Everyone wants to raise their kids in housing, right? Like there's just some basic fundamental human needs that we can all agree we would want. But yet and still, we have made these things commodities and out of reach for certain people. So the idea of rent being attainable and people being able to be safe in a home, I don't characterize that as radical. And the fact that we've gotten to a place in our politics and our public discourse where it's described that way, lets you know how urgent it is that you get involved in the fight today. What the right is doing is rewriting history and banning books and any other number of things that if you just look a couple years back through history in other countries, you see where this road leads. So when folks try to position what the right is doing and compare that to Black Lives Matter, those, those two things are not the same. You are not comparing the same thing. The Black Lives Matter movement is a movement that's outlining people who want to see Black people have whole, full, thriving lives and not be concerned with the worry of dying in a routine traffic stop or dying in their home because an officer knocks on the wrong door or any other number of anecdotes that we've heard of Black people being killed at the hands of law enforcement or random white people who feel threatened by the presence of Black life. So when we talk about defending Black people from being unnecessarily killed, that's not the same as what the extreme right is doing in trying to make sure that your vote doesn't count or in trying to make sure that you don't have right when you go to the hospital. It's so crazy to me how the right has been able to uh, weave this web of we are pro-Christian, pro-family, but small government. But we're going to tell you what to do with your body. Like, y'all don't hear how crazy this is, but they have a whole army of folks that buy this and believe this. And what I deduced, and I think that it's a good hypothesis, is that they see that the ethnic landscape of America is changing. And you can Google search, what will the average person in America look like in 2045? And it will be a person of color. Right. So all these aggressive efforts to restrict women's bodies, I think, is twofold. One, the highest number of abortions come from Caucasian women. Like, that's a fact. I'm not making that up. You can research that. So if you are saying certain women can't or women can't get abortion or certain women can't get abortion, we know that wealthy people will find a way to get abortions in states where it's permissible. So what happens with this is you create a permanent underclass of folks that are already struggling. Black women don't earn what their white male counterparts earn or what their white female counterparts earn. But the black woman in Alabama who cannot get an abortion and cannot afford to travel to Alabama or the nearest state adjacent to her to get an abortion is forced to have that child. That's what I'm talking about when I say thus creating this permanent underclass people in this country. So you can't compare apples and oranges with me. Now, is there some legitimacy around some of the things that come up when they call the extreme left, the extreme left. Yeah, there are some things I think that go too far. I don't know what examples of that would be because I don't listen to those arguments either. I really try to make sure that my messaging and the things that I'm learning and advocating for are for the betterment for people at large and as a whole. When we talk about rent being affordable, that's something that everyone should be able to understand. When we talk about childcare being affordable, how in the world are we gonna have a number one economy if we don't have anywhere for people to take their kids? Right. We all feel this extreme heat. We just saw what's happened in Hawaii just last night, yesterday. We saw what extreme temperature, I'm sorry, what extreme weather in New York earlier this year yielded with the wildfires from New York. It covered the whole skyline orange. Yeah. So we have very serious things that the extreme left is concerned about, but we see the consequences of ignoring those things manifesting in real time. So They're not the same to me, quite honestly. The right is preoccupied with restricting rights and harnessing power because they see that they are losing their grip on America. We are protecting the rights that we have earned and expanding them to include
1: more people so that we can really have an America that lives up to our word. One of the things I hear often is, well, we elected Barack Obama and nothing changed. (laughs) And so, you know, of course, he was the hope and change guy, right? But I, I validate everyone's feelings. I think that you're allowed to feel how you feel and your feelings are real. And we also need to look at what's factual, like what, what actually occurred. And we did shift quite a bit. I think we made a number of shifts, but for the person that feels like their, their vote doesn't matter, their voice doesn't matter, that things don't change. And even kind of to an earlier point, how we're we're facing similar struggles to what we faced in the 60s and 70s and, uh, you, you know, you name it. How do you stay encouraged? How do you, what, what would you tell that person that doesn't want to get involved because they think it doesn't matter?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, the first thing I would say is what I always say. It didn't matter. It wouldn't be trying so hard to take it from you. The saying encouraged part is hard. I'm not going to lie. It, it's very hard. Uh, my whole life is politics. My whole life is community. It's not a whole lot that I do outside of those spaces. It's hard for me to sit down and watch like a regular movie without me thinking about like, oh, this happens in real life. I need to develop a plan to do that. My husband told me, he was like, it's just a movie. You could chill out. I was like, "Mm, you're right. (laughs) But what makes me stay encouraged is when I pause enough to remember the people who've done this before me. One of my little hangout spots, and I haven't been in a while because it's hot in Las Vegas but I like to just pop up at Legacy Park on the West side. And I just walk around and I just look at all the people who have contributed in some meaningful way to this community in learning about the things that they did. Think about Dr. Ruby Duncan. I think about uh, Brother James McMillan who's a former NAACP president. I think about Miss Brenda Williams and her and her husband, uh, James Williams, who were county, was County Commissioner. The countless people, Mother Tolan, just the, the things that they had to endure and go through in order to advance and protect opportunities so that I can sit here and be talking to you today so that our kids, our, our community kids can go to a school, right? So I stay encouraged thinking about the things that they had to endure, knowing knowing that I'm not dealing with the exact same challenges that they were dealing with. I just got back from conference season. I went to my fraternity conference and then I went to the NAACP conference. Now, Alpha started before NAACP So there's a shared history there in many respects, but thinking about the historical figures that have come through those organizations and been affiliated with both at one point or another and the things that they won and got through is what keeps me going. It was a decision that was made to be of service and to persevere and to make sure that we were on the right side of history in protecting and advancing civil rights. I can't help but think I can be successful because I have way more tools. I've got this little computer I walk around with every day. I have a car. I have a job that pays me to eat. Like, I, like I eat good. Like, let's be very clear. <laughs> I don't have to worry about being on the street. I just have such a privileged life that my foremothers and forefathers didn't have. And yet and still, they were able to advocate and pass federal policy that would protect my voting rights protect federal policy that would desegregate schools. So there's nothing in me that says I can't do it. It's just a matter of finding the right people to come along and do it with. So I'm going to use this as a plug to go to NAACPLasVegas.org in case you are looking for an organizing home. Because that's one of the things one of the elders at the National NAACP Conference told me. I said, well, you know, it's hard to get people to do stuff. It's hard to get people to get buy-in because we just all in our corners. And the gentleman said to me, he said, Quentin, that's not a unique challenge. That's an ongoing challenge. He said, but what you do is you keep going anyway. People respond to consistency and eventually the right people just come along. And that hit me like, damn, you're right. So I got back to Las Vegas and I'm like, we're doing this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. I know somebody that might want to do this. And now I'm just feeling like fired up, ready to go. And that's not to say that I don't have some days that I'm like, womp, womp, because yesterday was one of those days. And I know that we will
1: win the way that we have won in the past. Yeah, you, you just tap on so many different things in, in that statement. Community is important to me. And one of the things that I do is I, I help organizations create cultures that are thriving and to improve morale and to, to gain buy-in. And I mean, this is stuff I've studied for years. And I still struggle. I'm still like, is this really the right path? So I'm asking two questions kind of in one. One is our nation is built on the collective voice. So we vote and we move forward based on consensus. That's hard. It's much easier to just tell folks what they're going to do. And I think that all of us are always smarter than any one of us. So there's value Mm -hmm. in it. The second part of this one question is, with an organization as multifaceted as the NAACP. So you've got health, you've got policy, you've got youth, you've got money. I mean, you've got all of these different components. How do you allow for the individuality to express while still staying focused on that collective mission and not leaving anyone out or excluding any? Mm Mm-hmm. Powerful. Can you ask the first part of that question again? Yeah, with the the idea of democracy, just gaining consensus. Gaining consensus mm-hmm. is difficult. How do you do that part of it? hmm
0: hmm
1: Well, I think the first thing is to start with
0: asking people what their experiences are. One of the things that we've taken to do at our branch meetings, I think we did it two months in a row, is we like are directly asking our community members, what issues are you seeing? I don't... There's a lot of folks that, you know, the become president of something or they become the leader of something and that just means, you know, I know everything. I don't know everything. I know what I read and I know what I know. But I'm not in every single pocket of this valley. So I think the first thing you have to do is be willing to listen. So we are directly soliciting input from our community members about the problems that they see in their communities. And in having discussions about what those problems are, we try to see if that fits within a committee. If it doesn't fit within a committee, we make a committee for it to fit in. Because we don't want anyone's problems to go ignored, especially if it's something that can, be, uh, that can be fixed with just a little bit of people power, right? I'm a firm believer that we can solve a lot of our problems outside of the binary of politics if we were just talk to each other and create buy-in amongst one another. I think another important part of gaining buy-in is having a deep relationship with people. I got a little controversy when I took office because I took our branch meetings back to in-person I'm not a COVID denier. I recognize that the pandemic, in large large part, we are still dealing with that, right? Like COVID cases have ticked up in some areas recently. But I know the power of buying in when you are in person amongst folks. We did COVID meetings as an NACP branch for the better part of two years. And as a member, I felt like I was seeing new people every single virtual Zoom meeting. In person, I largely can, I know who I'm expecting to see in person. And they're expecting to see those other people that they know are going to be there month over month too. And while that may not mean that we are changing the world tomorrow, we're creating a fondness for one another to create something that could be world-changing in six months, a year, two years, my next term maybe, right? A large part of buying in is having a deeper connection with someone outside of just the transactional, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm good too. All right, see you next time. We have to care. We have to genuinely care, without there being any incentive for us on the other side, aside from the incentive that our community is better off with us
1: being in relationship with one another. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I want to just, just dive deeper into that and just frame it around the importance of democracy, because what mm-hmm. you well, if we have a need, we feel it. We add people to that. People, uh, democracy doesn't exist without the voice of people. How do you navigate the seven or well, eight billion different perspectives on the planet towards right. a common cause? And of course, you're dealing with a much smaller scale in Las Vegas, but harnessing yeah. the perspective, the, the um, ancient wisdom of our elders with the innovation and eagerness of the youth, bringing those together for a pace that is manageable and that everyone can go along with it. How, how do you put mm-hmm. all that together? Well, I think and I'm, I think, because I'm like, this is a hypothesis
0: I'm trying. And I'm doing this in all my spaces where I'm really trying hard to make democracy tangible for people. We talk about democracy in these very esoteric ways. And I can remember being a young man thinking that the world as it was is how it would be. And my whole pivot towards democracy came as a result of the, what I call a terrorist attack on January 6th, 2021. 2021. Yes. When uh, we saw extremists attack our capital in the name of trying to overturn the election results from the people who said, hey, we want to try something different, Donald Trump, we got on you. Right. That's when I was like, oh, well, if we don't have a country, affordable child care won't won't matter so much like affordable housing won't matter. We'll literally be starting from scratch. OK, well, my people can't start from scratch right now because we are already at such a deficit. So I think the best way to try to bring people and create buy-in on tactics and strategies to protect democracy is to talk about the ways that democracy shows up in your everyday life. What are the amenities that you enjoy that are a vestige of democracy? Our school district here in Clark County is not the best. We regularly rank close to the bottom on a lot of things. But the mere fact that we have a public school system is a byproduct of democracy. And if we see that that school system is not working, the good thing about democracy is you are invited to be engaged and change the rules, change the process of how that thing is run, change a great deal of what is so that it can be better and better serve the community at large. I think so many of us just think that this thing will just be and that is probably uh, uh one of our things around American exceptionalism is that we just think it's going to be okay. We're going to be bees knees forever. That's not the case. We could very easily be a third world country that we would otherwise invade and try to protect if we saw the things happening there that we have happened right here in our very own backyard. So if we can make democracy tangible for people, especially young people, especially people from different different ethnic backgrounds, then I just happen to think that we can change who's in charge and create a system of governance that's more inclusive of people, that's more mindful of folks. In my job at Run for Something, we go out of our way to try to get out of the traditional party system. For a long time, we would say, oh, I'm going to call the Clark County chair and see who they want to recommend for state senate. And then we are going to help them run for office. No, what we're doing now is we are riding buses. We are going to nail salons. We are going to laundromats, We are talking to people about, hey, have you thought about running for office? Well, I don't think I'm qualified. <laughs> Here's the thing. We had a whole president who committed like a whole lot of crimes while he was president. So you actually are qualified. So we should try this thing. So getting people to understand like that, it's not this A plus, AP science experiment that you have to pass. You just have to care. Care is enough to run for office. And I promise you there's enough me and enough wills to help you figure out how to get over the finish line. And if you don't get over the finish line, you'll at least go down, with a strong fight and you'll have a whole army of people behind you ready to do the thing that you're interested in doing. So I just happen to think that if we make the system a little bit less political in nature and make it more plain for people to understand like, hey, you want this bus to run at a different time of day? That's what the county commissioner does. They have authority over the regional transit center. You should consider running for county commission. Making it accessible for people in ways that make sense to their brain, I think is how we save democracy. Not about Joe Biden in 2024, folks. It's going to be about if we have a democracy and if we have a voice and the people that lead this country.
1: Well, I could go on and on with you for hours. (laughs) There's so much that we we didn't even get to. But before we close out, I want to know what you're listening to. What what's on your your playlist? I know Janet Jackson. We got Janet Jackson made for now. What else? You know Janet. Oh, man, that's a
0: great question.
1: Uh, I am a 90s R&B kid. I love 90s R&B.
0: That is my safe place. I've been listening to a lot of Nita Baker lately because uh, I bought tickets to go see that show in October. New stuff, I've been listening to Janelle Monae. I'm a big uh, John Batiste fan. I have been listening to a lot of John Coltrane during my work day because it helps me focus. And I can't say this person's name right. Katrin. Cat- a trondo K-A-Y-T-R-A-N-D-A. If you ask me, you
1: the wrong person, I have no idea.
0: <laughs> well, he th- this person's a Canadian artist and they have a lot, they have a good, they have a good discography. I really enjoy, enjoy their music. And of course, all things be, like I've been enjoying the Renaissance
1: proxy, all my friends that have gone, because I haven't made it to the show this but it's all good. And then what are you doing to take care of you? I know you mentioned journaling and meditation earlier, but yeah, that's all you're doing to take care of you. That's really it. And it's not really helping. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, I have to do better with the taking care of me part. And honestly, I think, remember earlier, I was talking about how my service is, I honestly find kind of a selfish thing uh, because I think that my service My service to my people supersedes my service to me, and I I think I'm doing it on purpose and not take care of me. And that's something that I'm really working on, because that's not good. That's not good. I make myself feel good being of service to someone else while not taking care of my own vessel. So it just dawned on me recently, like, oh, you're keeping yourself busy on purpose because you should be going to the gym or you should be grocery shopping, or you should be at that therapy appointment so that you can work through your own deal, right? right? So I'm not doing the best job at the self-care, but the best part about me is when I realize something about myself, I, I whip into shape to fix it. And intention equals result in my world. So as, long, as soon as I get intentional about it, then there will be a change up. So I'm looking forward to that and uh, encouraging others to Be on the self-care journey, like consistently. It's not a destination. It's literally a journey. You have to be cognizant. You have to be intentional. You have to explore new things. I tried something a couple of weeks ago that I was like, wow, I painted it. I went to a community event and I just sat there and painted. And at the end of 40 minutes without touching my phone, I thought I was crazy. And I was like, actually, this was really good for me because it required me to slow down. It required my brain to just be at peace for a moment and just color little canvas that was right in front of me. And it was actually the nice thing I've done for myself that week.
1: I love it. So trying something new. Yeah, that, that's good. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to stay on you about this, this self-care. I always encourage <laughs> the healers and helpers to include themselves in their circle of care. That's so critical. Thank you. All yes, right. Sir. So what's going on with the NAACP? I know you all have some events coming up. So share what's happening. Yes, we do. We have a lot of good stuff coming up.
0: Our annual Freedom Fund Gala is coming up. We are celebrating our 95th year. The Freedom Fund Gala will be on Saturday, October 21st. It will be at the Paris Hotel Resort and Casino. I'm very, very excited. Our our theme this year is remembering, reclaiming, and reimagining R in AACP. I am really trying to create this universal buy-in into our branch as we usher in our 100th year. God willing, I'll be president as we usher in this 100th year. And I want to spend these years walking into that centennial, really building the type of community buy-in that will fortify the programming within this branch and really solidify our political and civil rights power as an organization in this state. Uh, The NAACP is the oldest, biggest, and baddest civil rights group. And we have a long way to go to restore, uh, restore how our community should see us and to restore the credibility that we should have with our community. So I'm up for the challenge and I'm willing to do it. So I hope that you can join us at the Freedom Fund Gallery. Tickets are $250, it is a fundraiser. Funds generated support the branch scholarship fund where we provide scholarships to high school seniors and current college students that are branch members. And what else do we have coming up? Our next general member meeting, August 19th, 1230. I always say if you can't make a membership meeting, you just have to remember three things, always 1230, always the third Saturday, always Pearson's Center. So that's really it. I can't wait for to see you all. And I welcome you to join us. Our website is naacplasvegas.org.
1: Awesome. Well, Quentin, thank you so much for joining the podcast and thank you for the work that you're doing. I'm a member of the NAACP here. Uh, not just because I've been doing it for my entire life since I started in Michigan, where my pastor was also the president, but because of your leadership and because of the vision that you have for our community being inclusive, expansive, and uh, you're revolutionary. And I'm just grateful to to be able to say I know you. Uh, you're the best. Thanks, Will. I appreciate that. That was really kind of my brand. Thank you. Welcome. This has been Compassionate Las Vegas, the podcast. I'm Will Rucker, and as I always remind you, you are not just a drop in the ocean. You are the entire ocean in a drop, and what you do matters, so live I'll See you next week.